Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter, reminding you to visit our Substack at acons.substack.com. There you will find links to this podcast, as well as our social media platforms and all of the great commentary and other things that we do. So please go to acons.substack.com and uh, follow us there. I am so excited about our guest today. Let me tell you a little something about him first, and then I'll tell you why I've been really looking forward to this particular episode. Adam Coleman is the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. He has a very popular Substack page uh, called Speaking Wrong at the Right Time, as well as his own Substack page. He is a columnist for the New York Post. He also has a book called Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. So we're going to get into that a little bit. But one of the reasons I really, really wanted to talk to Adam today is because Adam has a unique story. And in the Black community, we don't talk about some of these issues quite enough, I don't think. I have been very open on this show, on everything that I have written, everything that I have done, that I struggle with uh, depression, anxiety. I've been diagnosed with OCD, so that is an anxiety-based disorder. Uh, And there are like six different subtypes and stuff like that. And so all of the uh, stigma around that, the stigma around medication, the stigma around, particularly in the Black community, talking about mental health issues. Um, And I think uh, just... I want to dive into that a little bit because it is such a big topic. And I have learned in my 59 years um, that I have just decided I'm not going to hide anymore. And so I'm going to be super open. And so I have really, really appreciated all of the things that Adam has written on this subject. In fact, that's kind of how we connected sort of. I mean, it was through Alan West, but mainly uh, I just kept writing him because I would see something that he wrote and it touched me and it resonated with me. And um, we built up a little correspondence. And so you're going to see him here today. So without further ado, here is Adam Coleman. Hey, Adam, it's great to have you on. (laughs) Yes, I'm, I'm glad to be on. I appreciate the introduction. So let's get into this a little bit, because what I'm finding um, just with mental health issues in general is uh, there's such a stigma around mental health issues to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is such a stigma around medication. If that is the option that you and your doctor in partnership decide that's the route you want to go for many, many, many years, I resisted it. Um, And so there's that stigma, but there's also kind of the, I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult enough to struggle with depression and then almost feel a, for lack of a better word, resentment, because I feel like I carry the stigma of the other person 
that I kind of have to shove down what I'm going through and what I need because I don't want to freak out this other person. So I have to, you know, kind of keep it on the down low and not really talk about it and keep it to myself. And that's been antithetical, I think, to my healing. That isn't something that has been helpful to me. So I've just decided, you know what, I'm just going to be me and I'm going to talk about it because I think people need to hear it. And people, if they don't understand it, at least need to be comfortable with the topic. So as we talk about mental health uh, in the black community in particular, there is like that additional layer of stigma around medicating and, and talking about it and that kind of thing. I'm not exactly sure where that comes from, but I just wanted to explore that topic with you. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your mental health journey and then we can kind of get into the specifics. Sure. Um, I mean, my mental health journey, so to speak, starts from, I would say, five, six years old. Um, it's been quite a while uh, just dealing with uh, depression, thoughts of suicide, things of that nature at different points in my life. Um, you know, I, I started talking about this, uh, I believe, earlier this year that uh, when I was six years old, I was admitted to a mental hospital. Um, because I told my mother that I wanted to kill myself. And um, it was something that I actually hid for quite a while, uh, just like mentally. I just didn't think about it, just kind of tucked it away until my sister brought it up one, one day. And then I, all these feelings kind of came back. Um, but I think be becoming a more public figure, I wanted to do something positive you know, the book talks a lot about my my upbringing and like the things that I went through. But the whole point is overcoming those obstacles. And there are there have been things like in the past couple of years that I've slowly overcome and trying to improve myself and get better at um, and work on. And one of those things is my mental health and how I see things, how I approach things. Um, and I think there's value in talking about your flaws. Uh, because I think often people think that they're alone. They're the only ones who are going through whatever they're going through. Um, and by me being uh, open enough to talk about it and owning my mistakes and owning struggles and things like that, but not complaining, but talking about it as a way, to, as a therapeutic measure to overcome it and move to the next step, I think has been something that has been well-received and I get a lot of people who share their stories as well whenever I share one of mine. Um, so I, I think that there's a bit of human, there's a bit of a human element that's missing in the political and cultural space. I, I think we talk about people as if they're things and not human beings. And we all have some sort of struggle, right? Even rich people have a struggle. Uh, you know, there are wealthy people who kill themselves. So. I mean, everybody has some sort of struggle. It's how they manage it, how they deal with it, or if they don't deal with it at all. And so I just wanted to use my voice. If I'm, you know, I, I have a little bit of a platform. Um, I'm not super famous or anything like that, but I wanted to use my voice to speak for regular people who are going through something. And, you know, I'm one of those people who's going through something. You know, what you just said about, being honest about your struggles and having conversations and making it 
a positive thing because, you know, when you're in the throes of depression, I don't think people really understand how bad it can get. I mean, you know, there are bad hair days and, oh, you know, um, I got into an argument with my significant other or whatever it is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been times when it has been a struggle to get out of bed to brush my teeth. I don't think people understand that that level of, you know, the depression that we're talking about. Yeah. And I've really been going through it lately. I'm going to be honest with everybody um, because I've had uh, three significant losses in the last few months. And um, it's not so much um, the sadness, although that's a part of it. Um, but once the depression has been kind of activated, it takes on a life of its own and it's a spiral that you really can't get out of. And so these comments about, oh, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps as if I chose to feel this badly. Because trust me when I tell you, you know, not being able to get out of bed to take care of yourself or, you know, those kinds of things is pretty bad. And I don't think anybody would choose. If somebody is actively choosing that, then yes, there is something seriously going on. Um, but we've got this stigma around um, some of that. And so I think for me in this latest one, what you said just now has really kind of where I, I've settled, where it's kind of like, take this as an opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, what steps can I take? Um, and having an action plan, I've had an action plan for a really long time, you know, all the things that I can do for myself. So I have, you know, my Spotify list of music that's like really loud and drummy because that drumminess kind of, I don't know if it just knocks my, you know, uh, neurons so that they're firing. I don't know, but mm -hmm. um, my essential oils have gone crazy because I have to have, you know, all of that, um, that toolkit. But what you said is there is this, now I'm old school, so I'll say tape but but okay download a loop if you will mm -hmm. um where it is negative all the time it's just the stuff that you tell yourself i'm dumb i'm stupid i'm fat i'm ugly i'm no one's gonna like me no one's gonna believe me no one you know da 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 da, da. i'm not like so and so and look at all the stuff that they have and you know all of that kind of thing um and it's just like constant right at least yeah. for me maybe it's the ocd i don't know because everything's on loop but trying to look at things positively, um, you know, here are the positive things that are happening in my life right now. Uh, doing some of the grounding work, you know, it tells you like to look at five things, smell four things, you know, those kinds of things. Um, all of that stuff has really been helping, but the main thing has been to try to work with my mindset because I would find myself spiraling because of the negative things that I was feeding myself. It's like you feed yourself junk food, you know, right. bad things happen to your body. I was just on a constant diet of junk food in my mind, telling myself just horrible things about myself. Um, and I just had to interrupt that loop. And like you were saying, focus on some positives and what could I learn from this and the bad thing about depression and anxiety is the tendency to isolate 
Mm-hmm. And not want to because I don't want to be a downer and I want to bring a whole room down and, you know, another thing that you tell yourself. Uh, and so you isolate from people. And the more that you do that, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I really made that effort to engage with people, even though it's hard because I have really bad social anxiety, which I know it doesn't seem like, right? But uh, I really have bad social anxiety. And so the insomnia and all of that stuff kind of loops into it. You know, I like to read my device late at night because I'm a reader and I read, you know, four or five books a week. Um, And so changing all of that has been kind of hard, but we don't talk about that. And so I just wanted to explore that topic with you. What are some things that you find yourself doing to help yourself? Now, again, we're not doctors. We're not mental health professionals. We're just two friends talking about, hey, what do you do? What helps you? So just keep that in mind. So the the big thing is uh, language. Um, How you describe yourself. Um, you know, like how you're saying, you go down the spiral of saying negative things. Um, and what I started doing was like, I'll give you an example. I know someone, uh, it was an ex-girlfriend of mine and she would, it became very apparent. Like anytime you would describe her, she would talk about herself in a negative way. Uh, she would say, I'm, I'm stupid. Like, but she would, she would vocalize it. And I I would say, like, when you put it out there, it becomes real, right? You say something enough times, you start to believe it. And my my thing is, I want to watch my language um, and not say things that aren't true, because I I know I'm not stupid. So there's no point in saying that. I'm not ugly. I'm not saying that. You know, trying to try to live in reality rather than creating your a fictitious world where you're the uh you're the you're your own nemesis and uh everything that you're saying is exaggerated and it's just a complete downer um i think another thing is appreciation um in taking hardships as lessons yes um and i think if you if you see like a, a circumstance that doesn't come the way you want if you see it as I failed, I didn't get it, or you know, if coming from a negative manner, and use it as an opportunity to say, you know, I could have done better, and next time I will, um, or you know what, this is a lesson learned. You know, I've said all the time, like I'll take the L on this one because uh, I screwed up, but next time this won't happen again. I'm going to learn from it. Um, so I think, you know, just being appreciative. Uh, especially once you overcome certain obstacles, you go back to those moments where that were negative and you say, man, look what I, look what I overcame. Look what I was able to do. Look how far I've come. Um, and I think, I think the solution is always within within you. You know, you have the will to kind of change your mind, change your mindset, uh, reshape the patterns of your thinking. And that's ultimately what I had to start doing. But I had to be mindful. Like, you can't change anything if you're not mindful of your behavior. If you know, like, when I when this happens, I do this. All right, so now I'm mindful of it. So next time this thing happens, I will try not to do that negative thing. But you have to be aware. You have to be aware of your flaws. Um, you have to be aware of how you react to certain things. 
you know, you have to just be mindful of, of these particular things so you can change your behavior. Um, and I think that's, that's a strategy that I personally took. Um, and last thing I'll say is I started becoming 100% accountable for everything. Um, pretty much everything that I would encounter. I have no control over if somebody does something to me or, or something for me. I can't control their behavior. But uh, I would try to find a way to say, like, you know what? Maybe I could have done something different that would have led to a different outcome. So next time I'll do something different. You know, I'll, that's my fault. I will, I'll do better next time. So it's not to, it's not to say to myself, I'm a screw up. It's to say that I'm human. I made a mistake, or maybe I could have done that better. The next time it won't happen again. And just being accountable for it, because if I'm accountable for the bad things, I'm accountable for the good things as well. So that's kind of how I tried to see things. That is such a good way to look at it because it's true. If you do the bad things, then yeah, there are some good things. And it's that yeah. all or nothing thinking, right? I mean, it's just like, I'm always this or I'm always that. And that's not always true. I mean, that's not true. Uh, mm -hmm. Days are filled with both good and bad things. And so that's what I've been trying to do. You know, I really messed up something badly yesterday. And, you know, my normal thing is, oh, you're such a screw up. Why are you so dumb? And blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, you know what? I did mess up this thing. Okay, what can I do next time better? Let's fix mm -hmm. what we can fix today and move on. And that really helped. That's hard to do. Um, but I think you can get to a place where um, the desire, like your book talks about, is going from that victim mentality to the victor. Um, and and it's, it's a struggle, but it, there's hope. Yeah. Why do you think in the black community in particular, this is such a taboo topic? Um, you know, it's very interesting because you're saying that you, you believe it's a taboo topic amongst black Americans. Um, it may be, I, I just never really saw from that perspective, like, uh, not going to therapy. Like I've, I've seen it from a male perspective, but I never really saw it from a black perspective. Like black people don't go to therapists. Why you need to talk about your feelings? Everybody lives in different areas and may have experienced that. And maybe that's something that maybe you, you've seen and others have seen. I just personally haven't seen that as like a, a thing that I've, you know, socially that I've seen, I've heard other people say it, but I've just never personally seen it. So I've never really seen mental health as a white thing or a black thing or not a black thing or anything like that. Um, I have seen it from a male perspective, you know, talking about your feelings um, is not something that we tend to do. Um, I wouldn't go as far as saying look down upon per se, but it's just something that isn't like, if you have a problem, you go to a therapist like, you know, men are known for not going to the doctor yeah. until their, their wives take them to the doctor. So they, you know, so we're very much, it's the same kind of thing, the mental health, you know, uh, scenario, we kind of avoid uh, getting the help that we need uh, because we think, oh, we can muscle through it or, you know, something of that nature. So unfortunately, I can't really answer your original question as far as why for black Americans? Cause I just personally haven't, 
I haven't seen that uh, up close. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the fatherlessness issue. Mm -hmm. um, you talk quite a bit about it, that in your book, and you've been very open about that on Substack. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and um, particularly when you became a father and how you decided that that, that generational cycle kind of needed to stop with you. So, um, you know, growing up, my father basically wasn't really around. Uh, he would come around once in a while. Um, by once in a while, I mean like uh, maybe once a year, if that. Um, I wouldn't really get many phone calls. You know, it's very, very few, uh, maybe once a year. And usually the times that I would see him was by chance or because he happened to be driving through. We had left Michigan when I was about, I think I was about four. I keep missing, messing up the timelines, but I left Michigan uh, at a very young age uh, and we moved to various states, but he really didn't come around. Um, and I didn't really hear from him either. Uh, I know there are stories of the mother keeping the father away from the kids, but that wasn't really, that wasn't our case. Um, my father just didn't really have any interests. So, you know, the other part is that my father was always married, but he was married to another woman. So we were the other children. Um, my dad was also uh, 34 years older than my mother. Or no, I'm sorry, not 34. Um, when I was born, he, my mom was 24. My father was 50. So just almost 30 years um, her senior. So, you know, there was the age difference, the family dynamic, you know, him being married. He wasn't going to be around us. Um, he paid his child support and that's about it. And, you know, I think I suffered a lot because of it. You know, I talked about me going into the mental hospital. Part of that was because we were moving a lot and, you know, we became homeless for a short period of time and things were unstable. You know, it was just, it was a situation that I don't think any kid should really go through. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder, you know, what life would have been like if my father was active in my life. Um, but he's, he's no longer here. Uh, he passed away some years ago. And when, when I was about 21, that was the last time I talked to him. Uh, I called him and he didn't really seem interested in talking to me. It was a very short and awkward conversation. Uh, and I just said, why am I trying? He doesn't seem interested. Um, so I never ignored his calls. He never called me. And, you know, I'm, I'm about to be 39 in less than a month. So it was quite a while ago, but that was the last time I talked to him. So, you know, that's, that's been our relationship in a nutshell. He's just basically was never really around. And, you know, I grew up in a single parent household also. And in my situation, I grew up with my mother who is white. And so that added a whole nother level of complexity to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, I was gifted. So there was that whole, you know, you talk, uh, I mean, 
you know, that whole, you talk like a white person thing, you da 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 da. Obviously, you know, I grew up with my mom who is white, but when mm -hmm. we moved to a, a, we always lived in a majority black neighborhood. Um, and so it was kind of that, that whole stigma around intelligence too. So it's kind of, you know, I was hosed on every level possible. So I, mean, I had the mental health thing and, you know, I've got the white mom and clearly I've got something to me. So you're denying your whole blackness and just everything. Right. Um, sure. But, you know, just hating father's day because, you know, this was for me, the late sixties, early seventies. And so divorce wasn't as common as it is now. And so, um, being kind of one of the few friends that didn't have a mother and father in the home um, was just really awkward and weird. Um, and so, you know, in our community, in the Black community, this is such a big issue because I think, man, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why, and I, I kind of want to talk about some of those things. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff in our community, you know, um, that I think we need to address ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, I guess what I'm saying is, I, to your point about the victimology and writing the book about being a victim, you know, it's always the white person kept us down and, you know, we can't succeed because of this thing and we have to have affirmative action, you know, as though, you know, your brain isn't the tool to get you where you want to go. Um, you know, my husband and I were talking about this because um, we were saying, you know, what is it that a black person can't do today that, you know, maybe they couldn't 40, 50 years ago, but it's like, they can't, it's not that they can't go to a school if they can get the grades to get in. It's not that they can't get a job, uh, you know, because legally that's, you know, you can't do that. So, I mean, why is it that we do not address some of the societal ills in our own community? Um, some of the mental health issues, um, the fatherlessness issue. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that uh, DK is going to join us in a little bit to talk about black on black crime. Um, the whole rap culture, all of that glorifying sort of thing. Um, we don't have any kind of correlation it's almost as though we're blind because it's like oh well we need to have reparations and we have to have this and we have to have that and we've got to fix what the white person did to us and yet there are some things in our community that we can address ourselves and i haven't seen the willingness for us to do that what what are your thoughts on that so <laughs> that's I've, a big question yeah, I have a lot I can add. So the fatherlessness issue, um, I try to make the point that, yes, uh, there are Black Americans like myself and, and yourself um, who grew up in this particular situation, but it's an American problem. So the, many of the things that we're seeing uh, that are happening for Black Americans were kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Um, when I talk about fatherlessness, most of the people who reach out to me do not look like me. Um, they have their stories. And what I started realizing is the other side of the statistic. You know, when they talk about, uh, you know, 60 so percent um, of black children growing up and, um, you know, unwed parents. Um, 
I believe the for the white population, it's like, I think it's around 30 or something like that, 20 something. I mean, it's like 25 or 30 percent. But if you extrapolate it by the population, there are more white people than black people who are growing up in that circumstance. And that's what I'm experiencing. I'm seeing that this is an American problem. This is disproportionately higher with us. But there are a lot of white people who are going through the same problem that we are. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with feminism, uh, the, the changes in our family court system, favoring mothers, encouraging divorces. Um, you know, the, the concept of divorce to separate a woman from the husband when he's, you know, the extreme situations of abuse. I think anybody would agree with that, but it turns into no fault, turns to all these different things. The mother wins by default. The father has to prove that he's a good father. Um, he has to prove his involvement. You know, all of these different things have led to the degradation of the importance of fathers within our society. Um, it's, it's tilted things rather than keep things in balance. Um, when you talk about degeneracy, um, one of the most of like the musicians that you're, you're referencing that are, you know, part of the degenerate culture within hip hop, grew up in single parent homes. Um, you know, the, the male rappers, they have no male, male influence to keep them in line, to give them hope. So they, they run towards degeneracy, uh, because it's easy. It doesn't take a whole lot to be a degenerate. Um, there's no real hope there to be inspired by. And, uh, and it's compounded when you grow up around dysfunction, uh, for the female degenerates, uh, they're looking for male attention because they never received attention from their father. And it's sad when I see that, but what ends up happening is they often keep repeating the cycle. Um, you know, they repeat the pattern and the same thing happens to their kids and so on and so on. Um, and, and this is not me like trying to poke at people, you know, it's a situation for me too, as much as I'm talking about it, a lot of this is an, an awareness later on in my adulthood. Um, but I had my son out of wedlock. Uh, my son doesn't live with me, but I'm very much so involved in his life. Um, and I put my son at a disadvantage because of the choices that I made. So the only thing I can do is encourage my son and teach him to <clears throat> to do different than me, um, to know the order. You get married before you have children, uh, to focus on yourself, build yourself up. You don't need to chase women. As long as you're building yourself, women will chase you. You know, so, you know, to teach him these things, so his mind is right and he's structured, but the reason his mind is right is because he had a father to tell him these things. I learned the hard way. My son doesn't have to. Um, so I think the, the family issue, much of, you know, we we're going to talk about crime stats. Crime stats, I think, are the result of the most extreme. Obviously, most black people aren't violent. Most black people aren't criminals. But what I think we're seeing is the most extreme form. And it doesn't take that, that many to destroy a neighborhood. You know, if you have 50 people in your neighborhood who are armed and crazy, and there's 10,000 people that live there, that's enough to disrupt it. You know, it doesn't take that many to completely destroy a neighborhood. Um, 
like even in the most crime ridden uh, crime riddled um cities they have somewhere around 200 murders and that's not good but they have millions of people that live there so it's like it doesn't take that many people to destroy a society it doesn't take that many people to destroy a neighborhood and i think what we're seeing is the most extreme outcomes um coming to light you know same thing with school shooters that is the most extreme outcome of family dysfunction and that's what it results in for the kid because no happy person wants to go out and shoot someone you know no happy person robs people they're not happy people um you know so i said a lot but i think ultimately the root of it is the family uh family dynamic I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, my daughter and I just had a conversation. My oldest is ours biologically, but my uh, two youngest are ours through adoption. Mm -hmm. And there were there was a lot of first family dysfunction. I mean, we adopted our children older. They were almost six and four and a half. And so they were, you know, almost fully baked as far as a lot of the cognitive issues and those sorts of things. Um, and I was talking to my daughter recently because she is about to have a birthday and mm. wants to get a tattoo. And her dad is like, no, I really hate tattoos, da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And I told him, I said, do you know that our daughter is going to be 22? And that by the time her mother was 22, her mother had three children. Mm. So you know what? Let that girl get that tattoo. She has broken a generational curse. She has broken the cycle. She's the sweetest girl. And to your point, our earlier conversation about therapy, she put in the work. She did not want to put in the work. She's a little kid, right? But by the time that she was 17, you know, um, there were some really very serious issues that she had to address. And I said, you know, you've got a year left before, you know, you can leave our home. I'm going to give you the advice of age and experience. Deal with them now. Deal with them now before you go to college and the pressure of having to stay up all night and do term papers because that we talked about that earlier. Sleep, you know, deregulates everything. Um, the lack of sleep. Um, I said before you're in a relationship, because if your relationship fails, it should be because of you or because of the other person or because of the both of you, but not because of something outside of that person's control because you brought baggage in. So address it, deal with it. Da, 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 da. So um, I sort of put her in a position where she kind of had to agree to my terms. Um, and so, but she did put in the work and I'm going to tell you, Adam, to see that cycle broken um, is so huge. She and her brother are amazing people with such a depth of character. They're both strong, faithful Christians. They both have, um, as we were talking about earlier, put the, the positive spin on things. It used to be, you know, why did mom did it? You know, they, they refused to call her mom, but we, I, referred to her as mama and her first name. Um, so why did she blah, blah, blah. And why wasn't I enough to love that kind of stuff? You know, uh, you talking about your dad and how he didn't really interact with you. I know I felt like, why doesn't my dad love me? Why doesn't, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So to see that 
generational cycle broken, at least for now, um, has been so gratifying. And so to see you be such a loving and involved father and breaking that cycle and um, making restitution for some of the mistakes that you made earlier in your life and pouring into him now um, what you want for him as a young man, um, I think is, is just so important. And so I thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I want to bring in DK because we're going to be talking a little bit about some crime stats and some of the things that we've been talking about. So DK, why don't you come on in and join us? Hi. Hello. How are you? <laughs> How are you? Sorry, I had to unmute, unmute oh, myself. Oh yeah, you're that guy on the Zoom chat. <laughs> Put me off guard a little bit. A little bit, I was off guard. Well, that's why I said we're gonna bring in DK. That was kind of the cue. <laughs> get ready. Get oh, I heard my name. I'm as ready. As I, as soon as I heard that, I was scrambling, scrambling. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. But um, that was a great uh, conversation you two would have, and you really touched upon a lot of topics that aren't discussed very often, um, even on a show like ours, and we discuss everything. <laughs> we touch mm -hmm. a lot of third rails, and, and it was great that to hear uh, the conversation about mental illness, um, big topic. And and I wanted to point out that in the book, um, he also touches upon another third rail, which is black crime. That's another thing that that is, in my opinion, destroying the black community. It's one of the things destroying the black community, along with the high rate of abortion, the, the lack of emphasis on academia, um, the falling away from the church, um, and, and it matters like that, you know, but black crime is, is a huge issue with me. And and uh, in the book, I don't know if I can bring it up, I'm gonna try. I don't know if I'm techie enough to pull this off yet. You, you've been practicing. <laughs> I got this far, but I don't know if I can scroll properly. <laughs> this is from uh, the book. He writes, Black Americans account for about 13% of the U.S. population, and Black men account for about 6% of the population. FBI statistics from 2019 show that the 6% Black male demographic account for about 51% of the murder arrests, 52 of robbery arrests and 26% of rape arrests. These are high percentages for such a small and concentrated demographic of people, especially in comparison to the white male demographic, which is about 31% of the population. So from my point of view, this is horrific. And and he uh, Adam compared it to, I'm saying he like he's not there. <laughs> is, from my point of view, um, it's not just a comparison to the white population. I, when I spoke about these stats, I compared it to the Asian population, because in number they're not we're not that far apart. We're about 12, 13 percent of the population. They're about six or seven percent. They're mm -hmm. going up. We're going down for reasons we will we'll talk about on a different show. Mm -hmm. uh, but. I think about 6% of the population, they committed maybe 1% of the crime. And we just saw the numbers from Adam. So it's a very hard, it's a very clear cultural problem that we are having. And, and we're not talking about it. In the book, 
Adam, you, <laughs> you mentioned LeBron James uh, tweeting about the Audrey Albury case, and that was a that was a much celebrated tweet because he talked about a black man who was killed by whites. But where was uh, LeBron James's tweet about the other ten thousand black men who who died that year alone, who were murder victims that year alone? You will never see that from uh, from someone described in the book as the black intelligentsia because they don't want to talk about black on black violence. They want to talk about white on black violence exclusively and they have their own reasons for that, which I'll let Adam talk to as soon as I finish ranting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I just want to say a couple more things about how taboo this topic is. Um, Because recently we saw in the news, um, there's a country Western video uh, that's that was taken down from CMT because it's about his name is uh, something Aldrian. I'm not a, I'm not very She's familiar. With Everybody knows that you have a big country music collection. Well, my collection goes back to Hank Williams, but anything <laughs> <laughs> anything She's past Aldine. Hank Williams or yeah. Patsy Cline and Johnny Cash, <laughs> you know those people. I'm not mm-hmm. really, I'm not really new on, on the, what the new guys are doing, but I, I do remember him being the guy who was giving the concert in Las Vegas. When that shooter from the hotel room yeah, shot like six people mm-hmm. and and wounded God, God knows how many more. Um, At the paradise, he, is it paradise? Yeah. Yeah, he was the guy performing on stage, and he had to stop performing when he heard the gunshot. So he, he brings that up because he wants he wanted to make it clear that he's not being pro gun. But I'll just show you some of the headlines. Uh, one one of the headlines that are, he got from this video. Uh, that's not it. While you're looking for it, I think the point that you're trying to make, though, is that people were saying that it was racist. Um, and so it's kind of like, how do you extrapolate that from the lyrics? Because he's just talking about certain, he's not, I mean, the word black never comes up. I mean, it's not, you know, but people have taken it to mean that he's talking about that sort of thing. Exactly. Just look at this headline. Jason Aldeans tried this in a small town. It's shameful. Naturally, it's the right. That's that's me. <laughs> the right. It's the right song of the summer. Well, it's, it's not my song of the summer, but I read the lyrics and, and I could see why it resonates with a lot of people. He's talking about, you know, you go around spitting on cops and he references uh, the knockout game, which is popular uh, maybe like five years ago or so. You know, sucker punching people on the sidewalk, um, doing all these horrific things, and and to a lot of people on the left, if you talk about these things, you'll get a headline like we just read. They they call it a dog whistle. You know, if you talk about black crime, it's a dog whistle saying that you're anti-black. You hear that from a lot of you get that from a lot of conservative politicians who who run for mayor, for example, saying, I'm going to be tough on crime. The crime rate is too high. These shoplifting laws, I'm going to change. The murder laws, these DAs, I'm going to get rid of. And very quickly, they're they're being accused of having a racist dog whistle. Uh, and, and that's how their campaign is characterized going forward by the media. And we, we um, one more thing, because we had a, a guest not too long ago who wrote a comic book called um, what was that comic book called? Private, uh, Private, oh, Private American. American. Yeah. 
And he, he got a, a similar, very similar headline. I'll just show the headline here. Because he's a border patrol agent. He was Hispanic right. and Hispanic wanted border. to protect his country from the flood of illegal. And this is the headline. That's Mike Barron, our guest. And this says, Punisher writer Mike Barron releases another racist comic book. Um, I'll leave it at that. So anyway, that's that's my point. If you talk about black on black crime in this in this uh, environment, you touch you're talking about something that's considered taboo by the mainstream media. It's considered racist somehow to even mention that we are not only the disproportionately greatest number of criminals, we are the greatest percentage of crime victims. You know, it's our men who are being murdered the most. It's our women who are being raped the most. It's our neighbors whose businesses are being attacked the most. And and if we could only address it, um, we, we'd all be better off. I'll, I'll let Adam uh, correct me on all the bad things I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, nothing. you didn't say anything particularly bad. And actually, I do appreciate you bringing up the victim part. I think that's usually what's missing. Um, and if I could go back, I would, I would probably put more emphasis on it, but you know, the one thing I'll say, I think I use the, the race crime stats appropriately. Um, my issue sometimes, and this is not towards you, but I'm just saying, um, there are people and I've seen it that use race crime stats as a jab against black people. There's no other way to frame what they're what they're doing because i've tried to have conversations with them and i asked them very specifically are you saying that this is inherent are you saying that there's a cultural issue and if they say inherent then that tells you everything and some sometimes they'll tell you inherent so they believe that we're just born predisposed to want to play the knockout game with people um absent of american history when uh you know we were, I would say, I think in the book I listed, like in the 1940s, we were about proportionate, our, our demographic was about proportionate to those who are incarcerated. So, you know, what's happening in the past, I don't know, five, five, six decades is a cultural shift. And to me, everything comes back down to uh, the family separation. But yeah, as far as as far as the race crime situation, I think everybody overlooks how it impacts the innocent black people who are just trying to live their life. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, I've written about this for the New York Post. And actually, I'm just so you know, it's funny you brought up that that story. Um, that's the article I'm about to write. It's an opinion piece about that country singer. So I'm still flushing out what exactly I want to say. But it's, it's the idea that the only way that they want to help black people is getting them out of jail, but they don't want to help black people who are fighting against the people who just came out of jail, who are trying to survive amongst the people who just came out of jail, for the people who are the tyrants, uh, the terrorists who live in their neighborhood. All of a sudden, those people don't matter. They want to defund the police in certain neighborhoods. 
right? But not in the in the upper class neighborhoods. No, they need the police. Or they can afford to get private security and they live in a gated community. Or maybe they live in the penthouse and they have a guard at the front. So I mean you have you have much of a an elitist view in our society and our our media is captured by basically progressive elitists. Um, they're the ones who are dictating everything as far as the messaging goes. So they're the ones who say everything is racist, bastardizing actual racism. They're the ones who say uh, everything is to hurt black people. Meanwhile, they do things policy-wise that actually hurt black people. Um, they cape for criminals, right, who deserve punishment and want their lives to be easier. But when those criminals come out, guess where they go? Amongst other black people who did nothing wrong. So I, I just... I, I don't like how our society is. I feel like no one's looking out for the regular average person who's doing right. You know, our politicians, especially Democrat politicians, they're not looking out for them. The media thinks they're all stupid. Um, and so there, there are very, very few people. And I try to do my best to stick up for the average person, stick up for average black people who are not criminals, who may have to live amongst criminals, who are trying to do the best that they can, who are working long hours. Um, you know, someone like my mom, you know, who who struggled and, and, and did the best she could, never took public assistance. Um, you know, we mm -hmm. did have to stay in a homeless shelter once, but we were in there for a few months and we were gone. Um, like, there's so many people who are like that. And the idea that someone's like, well, that person who's doing everything right, the the guy who has been in and out of jail for the last decade, he, we need to get not have him on bail. We need to give him a second and third and fifth. You know, just keep going on, chance. And listen, I'm all, I'm I'm about reforming people and giving people another chance. I think that you people can be forgiven, but they have to earn their forgiveness. Um, and I'm not seeing that. And I'm seeing that we're, we're allowing chaos to happen and the innocent have to deal with it. If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Adam Coleman. His book is Black Victim to Black Victor, Identifying the Ideologies, Behavioral Patterns, and Cultural Norms that Encourage a Victimhood Complex. Adam, it's been amazing to have you with us. How can our followers continue to follow your work and to find you online? Yeah, um, if they're on Twitter, at wrong underscore speak, I'm the most active on there. Definitely subscribe to my substack, adambcoleman.substack.com. Um, I'm just now getting into uh, a video podcasting, uh, so it'll be available in audio and video form. Um, coming out with a new episode, uh, I'm trying to do something a little bit different, more documentary-esque, sit-down conversations with people. Um, We're available. Really <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um so yeah, I'm just trying to I'm trying to do something different. I'm trying to provide something different uh, to the cultural political landscape uh, by having dialogue, by having sit down conversations, just an actual conversations, not interviewing people. Just we're talking and and also we're breaking bread, so we're eating food, having drinks, 
just talking about whatever comes to mind. Um, so yeah. You tell Marie to offer food. She doesn't. She doesn't <laughs> well, if you provided snacks, maybe, you know, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Some chips. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. I appreciate you. And now for that part of the show, I guess DK's already here, so I have to really introduce him. But let's deconstruct all that. That was a really great conversation. Yeah, he he made an excellent point um, about black crime victims. I, I guess he was adding to my point, you know, because where I grew up, I was the kid who was not allowed to go outside because if I went to the park, I would be robbed. I would be assaulted by one of the gangs and so forth. If I tried to ride my bike more than right in front of the house, you know, it was pretty much inevitable that somebody would knock me off my bike and and take my bike and and I'll be walking home. So so crime really affects the black community a lot more than we hear about, you know, and it's it's another example would be my father who had a, a liquor store. He was robbed so many times that it made the paper. It was one of it's one of those can you believe it stories how many times this guy has been robbed in within the last few years. Customers would just walk in with a gun take everything he earned and walk out. And it, it became like a joke story in the, in the, in the, in the media. Um, so, so it affects us a lot. It affects us how we shop, you know, cause we can't go to the places where we might be able to buy bread for a dollar 25. We have to buy it from bodegas where we have to pay more for it. You know, because the, the, the shop rights, the path marks and other that want to be open in a neighborhood where, um, they're losing too much to shoplifting and robbery, you know. And we're seeing that we're seeing that in <laughs> we're seeing that in uh, San Francisco now. You know, so many businesses are leaving San Francisco to um, because of they losing so much of their inventory. Do people just walking out the store with it? And now, where do these people go? If you're like the person who wanted to go to a, a Walmart to get the best price on this and that, that may not uh, may not be available to you anymore. So uh, I'd like to talk about black crime and from a different perspective than what you read about. I see these books at Barnes and Noble, for example, it's like, they call, they call it the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration of the black community, how prisons are like 70% black or whatever stat they have. And, um, but they never want to talk about that the people who who are victims of these people who are in jail are overwhelmingly black. So, but they never want to talk about that. They only want to talk about the people who've been arrested for uh, committing crimes against us. So it's um it's it's, it's racist in a way, in that they're they're looking at us as not being valuable as um not being important as crime victims. We, uh, we don't count as much as other crime victims and it's not something we get to talk about. You know, I mentioned this to uh, friends, family and coworkers and a, a lot of things they say is just dismiss, dismissal of the problem. They'll talk about, um, you know, well, white people commit crime mostly from white to my, white people also. And, when Asian people commit crimes, it's used against Asian people. 
but it's not the, the sort of numbers we're seeing in the black community. Uh, and those stats I read from Ann Coleman's book uh, just underscores that. How can 6% of the people of the U.S. population commit almost 50% of the crime, and that's unsustainable? So, uh, one, I know you have more to say. I just wanted to say that that's that's a big issue with me, and I'm glad uh, the book addresses it so well. Well, you know, one of the things that I've talked about because after I want to say it was Ferguson, um, I've mentioned that my cousin was talking to me, and he was like, "Well, don't you care that your sons, you know, don't get mowed down by some cop, you know?" another unarmed black man, blah, 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 blah. Well, first of all, I don't think one of them is going to be one armed, uh, unarmed for very long because one of my kids ha- in particular, as you know, has adopted the Texas philosophy and wants to get out there uh, at the at the range with Uncle Allen because that's what my kids call Allen West. So I think Uncle Allen is going to have uh, a mentee pretty soon. But be that as it may, one of the things that I've been saying is that, you know, um, to your point, you know, all these people come in and you can say that it's, you know, uh, black agitators or whatever, but it's the chop, chaz, you know, iPhone wielding sort of, you know, progressive leftist that descends on these communities and stoke the racial fires, if you will. Um, But here's what the news portrays, is that we are all animals and we're beasts that can't control our beastly nature and we're, you know, turning over cop cars and we're burning buildings. And I told my cousin, I said, you know, that is not going to make a white woman clutch her purse less or not walk around you. Um, It's going to happen more because it's being played out every night on the screen for, you know, a week, 10 days, every night, you know, Ferguson is burning. There's nothing left of the city, basically. And so all these black owned businesses, to your point, it's like, okay, so where do you get your bread? Where do you get, you know, your, your comestibles and those kinds of things? Um, You, you, you burn down all the, you can't cash your check in your neighborhood. Um, This one woman had a, a, I think it was a cupcake shop. She put all of her savings into this bakery and, um, you know, gone overnight, you know, um, I think there was a GoFundMe that somebody put up for her. And she was able to uh, recoup a lot of that, if not all of it. But she was the exception. And so I feel like, you know, um, as you said, we're we're not we're barely 13 percent of the population. Um, and yet these statistics are really disturbing. It's disturbing. And um, like I said, it's unsustainable. Uh, and when you hear these these people, these, I'll call them the white liberal class, they, they, they talk about defund the police as a way to help the black community. When you defund the police, who, who, who does that hurt? You know, they want to, it hurts us. They want to talk about how hard it is for how bad it is that you have all these cops in black neighborhoods, you know, but we're the ones who need the most protection, you know, and I've lived in a lot of these neighborhoods. I grew up in this yes, neighborhood. Yes, as you did. And I know we we need more cops there than in some of the neighborhood in the neighborhood I live in now. 
and it's, it's just a matter of the numbers. And and all these issues that we talked about are interconnected. I mean, the mental health issue, the fatherlessness issue, because I really think the fatherlessness issue um, has a, a that, that's connected with a lot of the gang activity because kids don't feel like they have a family. They don't have a feel like a place to belong. I'm not saying that that is the appropriate way to respond to that. But I mean, when you're left alone and you, every day these kids are, hey, you know, come with us, whatever, you know, for that kid, just like we're talking about with the trans issue right now, you know, that social contagion, because these girls are looking for a way to fit in. They're at that really awkward, weird age. And so here's this, hey, let's be trendy, you know, kind of thing. It's kind of the same when you're that kid that doesn't have a father in the home, your mom's working, you're looking at going, you're a latchkey kid, you're looking at going home, spending a bunch of hours, you know, you don't want to do your homework. Um, you know, so how do you shoot all that? I how do you kill all that time? You know, oh, well, here's some people that I can hang out with. Next thing you know, you know, and to Adam's point, you know, we're not bad people. There is an element, I think, that uh, has been portrayed that way. Um, you know, and so providing more boy and more boys and girls clubs, uh, providing educational freedom for parents to be able to move their kids to better schools so they're not in gang territory. All of this kind of stuff, you know, uh, is kind of interconnected. And the fact that we don't police ourselves, the fact that we don't address some of the cultural stuff, like um, the thing that, that we were talking about um, with one of our guests is, you know, uh, you hear these lyrics for 20 years, you know, you hear, you know, she's a this, she's a that, um, you know, she's only good for this thing or whatever it is. And, you know, uh, some of the lyrics and, and things that the way that we're portrayed. So, you know, you hear that constantly. That's, that's the culture that we grow up. And so, you know, you're, as much as you talk about it being younger, you're really only 11 months younger than I am. You and I grew up in the era, era of black exploitation, And so, you know, I'm a get you sucker and all that kind of stuff. You know, we were always criminals, hookers, drug dealers, drug addicts in jail, whatever it is, you know, uh, never the, the, the one with the high IQ that solves the crimes that da, da, da. you're just the fun loving sidekick, you know? Um, and so it, it's kind of no wonder uh, that we're kind of where we are, but we need to address it. I think culturally and have more of these really tough conversations before we talk about reparations and what the white man's done and all this other stuff, you know, we need to talk about what we're doing and what's going on in our communities as though we can't stop it. Like Adam's book says, you know, black victim to black victor and Alan West is notorious for saying that also, you know, that, that an unarmed man is a subject, uh, an armed man, uh, is, I'm, 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 misphrasing it, but he says, you know, you've got to be a victor, not a victim. And so we have all of this uh, stuff in our community that we just refuse to deal with because it's just much easier to say, oh, well, affirmative action is gone. And so, you know, you messed up my whole life and now we need reparations because, you know, generational stuff has happened. Well, we're breaking generational cycles. That's what Adam Coleman and I talked about. He's breaking it. I'm breaking it. We're all, my daughter is breaking it. My son is breaking it. We are breaking chains. And so we don't, and 
to go back to the mental health thing. You know, we're always talking about how bad this is and how awful that is, but we don't celebrate where we are as a people and the good things that we've done and where we are as a people, how, you know, we don't have Jim Crow anymore. We don't have a lot of things that, that were holding us down anymore. We have come so far in this country under this flag. So, you know, Brittany Griner, I'm glad she's maybe come to her senses on that particular point. But there's a lot of us that are still angry and think that it's, oh, the white man is keeping us down. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we can do. You know, we can focus on some of the stuff that people have done to us at some other time, as if though there's nothing for us to clean up in the house ourselves until that time. And and maybe most importantly, or one of the most important things we can do is we can try to overcome this constant messaging that we got, for example, about a month ago when people dismissed Tim Scott as just a uh, as a unicorn. He's the exception to the rule, and the rule is is that is is useless. Butt off. Yeah, it's, it's useless yeah. to do that. It's useless to work hard in school because the white man is only going to put you down. It's useless to try to open a business because the white man is going to put you down. It's useless to try to achieve anything outside of sports and rap because the white man is going to put his foot on the back of your neck. And, 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 and to that point, it's useless to even try to be a law abiding citizen because the white cop is going to treat you as a criminal. Regardless, as soon as he sees you, he's going, he's going to do something to hurt you there because they're a threat. And, and that's the messaging we get too often. And we're not getting the message that if you work hard in school, if you, if you uh, work hard in school, if you stay away from drugs, don't get arrested. Maybe you have a child out of wedlock. Yeah. Have a child out of wedlock, mm -hmm. get married, get married young and, and stay married. If you, if you do all the right steps, then you can have a financially very good life. But, um, for some reason, other ethnic groups are being told that. We aren't being told that. No. We're, we're being told that we're per, perpetual victims. The whole yes. mentality that Adam writes about so much in his book. We, and once you get that victim mentality, you're not going to work hard to try to uh, achieve much in life. You're going to accept your role as a victim. And then that's when you start turning to crime and start turning to... Uh, drugs and satisfying yourself with low-paying jobs if you want a job at all. Otherwise, you might just want to live off the state because that's your reparations. It's, it's a very damaging uh, message. It is. Yeah, and we hear it much too often. And, you know, as I said to Adam, I'm trying to pour something into my kids because I want them to hear that they are beautiful Black children or young adults, you know, that they are smart, that they are capable, that they can do, the, the world is their oyster, if you will. I mean, they can set the world on fire um, in a good way, that they can really do all of these things um, because they had parents that cared about them, that chose to pour that into them and break those chains and break those cycles. And that's what our kids need to hear more of. We're letting them read these awful, awful books that are in our schools. We're letting them go to horrifically failing schools um, and not allowing parents the freedom to move them across a zip code or to have a different way of funding our schools. Because this has been an experiment that has failed under Democrat, 
under Democrat control for decades. I mean, since Brown v. I mean, you know, we're still separate and unequal. So, you know, we we've got to make some inroads. And here's the thing: I was talking to my husband um, because I've been doing some genealogical research, you know, since the the death of two uh, dear members of my family. And um, he's got a famous relative who is known uh, across the aisle, uh, around the world as uh, someone who is a a little, um, oh, I don't want to know. I don't know what the word is best to describe this person, but this is a famous person uh, that has some very Marxist sort of ideology. And so we've been talking about, you know, the freedom schools and those kinds of things that we did uh, in the 70s, you know, the Black Panthers. I'm not saying that those, all of those activities were right activities and good activities, but I'm saying if you look at the historical time that those things occurred in, it's like, look, you're not educating our children. You're refusing them into your schools, like we talked about with last week's guests. You know, they. This is just right after the Civil Rights uh, Act was signed into law, and our schools still were not where they ought to be, and they still aren't. I mean, you know, fifty-something years later, but still, my point is that you know we're letting kids be in these failing schools. Where is the outrage? I don't think that there is probably anybody on the earth to fear more than a black mother. I mean, you can talk about these scary black guys and whatever you want, but a black mother who feels that her child has not been done right is, I mean, I I told my kids I'd be at that school every single day on somebody's tail about something. So where are the black mothers saying, this is unacceptable. You need to do something because this is not equitable in any way you want to talk about dei and have these big people with big salaries and these corporations it's just wasting a bunch of money um but you want to make things equitable you need to pour all that money into our schools and build us some schools that are funded independently of property taxes that have all of the bells and whistles that the white counterparts have you know all the robotics and you know Uh, custom tennis courts and all that kind of stuff, full-on computer labs, uh, that kind of stuff. You want to talk about reparations, that's where you start. So that's my rant for this week. I'm done. Okay. And on that note, we're going to remind you to go to acons.substack.com. That's where you will find all things African-American conservatives, uh, and you will find links to our social media platforms. Please follow us everywhere that you are. We probably are. So follow us. Look for us. uh, Follow our commentary. uh, Be sure to subscribe right here and get your podcast every week. Uh, We have a great guest like we did today, Adam B. Coleman. Um, And so... It is our pleasure to have you as a follower. Please do support our work. Until then, this is Marie signing off from Studio C. And this is DK. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And also, you can support our work at anchor.fm 
forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support.